You're listening to a podcast from DTB. Welcome to In This Issue podcast for DTB, volume 49, number four for April 2011. My name is Alex Taylor and I'm here today with Michael Allen, editorial assistant for DTB, Ike Hianacho, the editor, and David Fazakali, the deputy editor. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. Right, I thought I'd kick this off today, asking Ike just to discuss the editorial for this month, which is on herbal medicine all change. Thanks, Alex. This editorial really talks about a revolution as far as herbal medicines and their use is concerned. From the end of this month, 30th of April, the only herbal medicines that will be available for sale will be ones which have what's called a a traditional herbal registration. And that's a change from what's existed previously when herbal medicines could be obtained from all sorts of outlets without such a licensing system. Herbal medicines will also be available if they are classed as medicines. So there'll be two classes. There'll be ones which are medicines anyway and others which have this form of registration. It now, if you like, formalises herbal medicines in a way that they haven't been to date. So the editorial discusses that and the potential implications for particularly healthcare professionals and also refers to another change in terms of herbal medicines which is the proposed licensing of practitioners who supply herbal medication. So two big changes really as far as herbal medicines are concerned. How do you think this is going to affect everyone really? Um, I think that for many healthcare professionals there's been a tendency to really dismiss herbal medicines uh, perhaps by not even thinking of them as medicines, perhaps by not asking patients whether they're taking them and not having much knowledge about them. I think the changes that I've just outlined fundamentally change that position because by having a more formal structure around herbal medication and also by licensing of the practitioners, it's not quite so easy for people to say, well, actually, this doesn't matter very much. It's a bit it's a bit off the wall, it's not It's not to be taken so seriously, I don't need to know about it. I think increasingly healthcare professionals are going to have to know about it or at least find out how they can find out more about it. Now, um, we have DTB Select. Uh, we have a few different titles here. Michael, are there any that have caught your attention this month? So one of the most important articles um, probably in our DTB Select this month is new advice on drug interactions and, and hormonal contraception. And perhaps, David, you'd like to go through these changes. One of the issues we picked up in this Select, as Michael says, is, is the new, new guidance from the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health Care on uh, drug interactions and horm- hormonal contraception. This changes things quite dramatically from what people perhaps have been used to in the, in the past. Uh, certainly the guidance now is is changing things from the old position where if patients were taking courses of antibiotics, there was quite clear guidance on extra precautions being required during and after courses of antibacterials. But now the guidance is changing to say that actually additional precautions are not required for any antibacterials that actually don't induce enzymes which really leaves things like rifampicin or rifampicin-like drugs as the only ones that users of contraception will need to take additional precautions when they take. Uh, in the past, there was this, this theory that you could uh, reduce the effectiveness of contraception by broad-spectrum antibacterials reducing um, the effect of, of colonic bacteria and reducing recycling of ethanol estradiol. However, they've 
done some further work and research on this and say that actually there is no evidence to confirm confirm this interaction. Now I suspect this will be news to quite a few people and will change change the, the guidance or advice that that clinicians will need to give patients. Um, and it's probably quite important that, that local healthcare professionals work together to make sure they get their story straight on when they advise patients. So a fairly significant change then from traditional and previous advice. Yes, and one that may well have been missed um, by healthcare professionals, or at least not everyone may have read it at the same time. So the potential for people being given different advice by different healthcare prof- professionals um, is quite significant. Do you think women um, will find out about this through any other means, or is it just through your GP? Uh, whether this features in popular magazines and the lay press um, remains to be seen. It's not the um, probably the most uh, likely topic to hit hit those the, that that medium, um, but clearly they can seek advice from other healthcare professionals, community pharmacists, family uh, planning clinics, um, nursing staff. So there there is opportunity to to access this advice. It's just making sure that everyone is giving the same advice. So it's clearly important that healthcare professionals pick up on this. Uh, pick up on this and and yes adopt the the new guidance so that people aren't advised one way by one healthcare professional and another by another and give, and given conflicting uh, advice okay great thank you david um now moving on another article that we have in to be select this month is entitled better care after inpatient falls now i would have thought that this was an area that would be uh, fairly well managed and um, ike perhaps you could explain what has changed it's not really a change, Michael. I mean, what's prompted us to write about this in, in the Select is a report from the National Patient Safety Agency who've compiled reports, really, of inpatient falls and what follows those incidents. Their data are, are quite alarming in that they suggest that there's a significant level of mismanagement of patients who've, who've fallen while in, in hospital in terms of how they're treated after the fall, how they're investigated uh, and and cared for thereafter. Uh, And that can lead to a lot of harm. So so serious is the problem that the the agency has put together a a series of recommendations which it's requiring all NHS institutions with inpatient beds to follow by July this year. That gives a, a sense of how big the problem is and unfortunately counters your the assumption that this would be a a well-managed area. Also in DTV Select this month, we cover seven other articles. Uh, For our first DTV article this month, it's curing patients with liver metastasis from colorectal cancer. David, could you tell us a bit about this? Yes, sure. Thank you. Uh, Yes, colorectal cancer, um, fairly common common cancer. And um, a lot of people who develop colorectal cancer also develop metastases either at the time that they present because it's maybe fairly late on in their disease or during the course of their illness um, they they will develop metastases indicating a spread of a spread of the disease and traditionally this has been quite obviously a, a fairly serious phase and a lot of the treatment is is aimed at, at just sort of palliation at this at this this point a lot of the metastases occur in occur in the liver and if the liver is the only site of spread, there is some potential for uh, improving the outcome for such such patients by 
resecting the liver, removing the metastases and, and uh, improving the, the outcome. So what we use this article for is to look at some of the developments in the treatment of patients with um, liver metastases from, from their colorectal cancer, looking at the ability to um, reduce the size of the metastases in order to be able to, to operate um, and, and have a greater success rate with, with surgery, but also looking at some of the new um, targeted therapies uh, newer drugs that have been introduced that, that work in slightly different ways um, and target different parts of the cancer pathway. So we look at the, the role of those agents as well as trying to address the issue of the liver metastases. David, you said um, improve the outcome. Do you mean actually cure some patients? Well, using the word cure in the specific cancer sense in terms of improving five-year survival rates... Um, then yes, there is some evidence that this will this will improve outcomes, or some of these interventions will improve outcomes for for patients. I do want to discuss our our second article in the DTB, which is reflumolase for severe COPD. Yes, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, is a very common condition, and reflumolase is a, a fairly new treatment which is licensed for treating patients with that condition. It's a so-called phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor, a bit of a tongue twister. Essentially, this means that it impairs the function of an enzyme, phosphodiesterase, leading to increased levels of, of, a, of a substance called cyclic AMP. That change has been shown, at least in animal models, to result in what look like helpful changes in terms of the COPD disease process. In terms of the clinical data, as usual, we've reviewed it and tried to see whether uh, reflumolase has a natural place for patients with COPD. So that's what the article focuses on, whether and how this changes the, the management of people with that condition. All right, thank you very much for joining me here today. Please visit our DTB website if you'd like to read up any more about any of these articles at dtb.bmj.com. Thank you very much. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.